You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. On today's episode, I'm joined by Noah Hall, the creator of the Datu programming language. We talk about trade-offs in different styles of running open source projects, from the single author BDFL to the design by committee model, how languages evolve through risk-taking and experimentation, and both the benefits and costs of backwards compatibility. Software Unscripted is sponsored by my employer, No Red Ink. No Red Ink makes software for English teachers, and we're on a mission to help all students harness the power of the written word. We're also hiring, so the next time you're thinking about a change, take a look at noredink.com slash jobs. And now, Datu. All right, Noah, thank you for joining me. Thank you. So you recently wrote a blog post that's been kind of uh, doing the rounds on, on various like social media sites and stuff, and it's titled The Case for Building Something Wonderful Alone. And I thought it was really, really well written and also like something that resonated with me because I think there's this presumption in like, I don't know, popular open source culture that like everything that aspires to be, you know, used by a bunch of people needs to be built by a team of people. And that like building something alone is only something you do if you're not building something serious. I don't agree with that. And it seems like you don't agree with that either. <laughs> no. So it kind of came into my mind because... At work, we've been discussing the open source policy. And one of the things that we have in our policy is that when you're open sourcing stuff, then there's people on hand to help you write readmes to set up the GitHub repository, stuff like that. But I think one thing that came very clear was that people would kind of stall and wait for other people to build something with them instead of just building something really cool by themselves. And I think you have like this, this problem where you have group think, like everyone has an opinion about how you should do something. And the end result is that it doesn't get built. It doesn't get released. It doesn't have like a cohesive vision. And with Dedu, I've been working pretty much alone, not really asking for help from anyone other than like some opinions on like implementation details or like, should I use ES build rather than Webpack or whatever? And it's kind of the, inspired a lot about by Elm. So, you know, Evan has had this vision for what Elm should be and his vision is what he followed. And I think what you got out of that in terms of the language design was super nice because when you're working with the core parts of Elm, everything feels a bit cohesive and, and together and it really fits together well. And the language design is uh, consistent with itself. And there are other languages like that do a totally like groupthink kind of approach where maybe you have like a shepherd or a BDFL who guides the language and uh, says, okay, this is what we're going to do or this is not what we're going to do. But they have input from the community that say, I would like this feature or I would like uh, this implementation to change. And... And it's kind of thing for like a, a small language or a small project. If you don't have some vision from the start, you, like your vision can change later on. But if you don't have a vision from the start, you're not really going to know what to build. You're not really going to know like the purpose of what you're building. Which, I mean, to be fair, lots of projects start out that way and then end up being widely used. But I think you can often see well after the fact, the downsides of not having some degree of clarity of what you where you wanted to get to early on where it'll turn out that like something that you know people sort of assumed would be fine early on or maybe they just like weren't really thinking about it at all 
later on turns out to be like a really serious unanticipated downside. And now it's too late to fix <laughs> because like there's a bunch of people using it, relying on the existing way. And it's just like hard to change. And and you can kind of see that with the, so there's like some issues that really benefit from having community input. For example, if you're designing something like a web renderer, something that puts JavaScript in the user's page, you might not be an expert in security, but you might have a member in the community who knows the ins and outs of all the modern uh, cross-site scripting exploits and so on. So there you can like really pull in your community and get them to be a resource for you as the developer is sort of, okay, I have this question about web security. Who do I go to? I go to this person. But I think the, so the blog post was sort of talking about the separation between community and team, where a community might be a Slack group, for example, where you ask some questions and get some responses. And the team is sort of someone who is actively working on what you're building. So I think in, in my case, I really like the community aspect of being able to reach out to friends or coworkers and say, hey, what do you think about this idea? Should I implement this differently or is there a better way I can do this? But then not needing to rely on them to implement it, they can give me the information I need and then I can implement it. Speaking of things that are, I think, under-discussed, there's the, a common thing that I hear people say about like having one person as the developer or as like, you know, the, almost all the development gets done by one person is that, oh, well, that's very risky because now you have, you know, it, how many people need to get hit by a bus, you know, the quote unquote bus factor before the project's in serious trouble. And it's like, oh, it's, it's really bad because you have a bus factor of one. But something that I've learned about, you know, in this case, also developing a programming language is that it's still possible to have a bus factor of one while having a number of people working on it. <laughs> so rock, like you, you mentioned rock in the blog posts. And like, you know, if you look at our like contribution graphs, it's like, there's like the top like five ish people have like a lot of commits. And then there's a drop off after that. But there's multiple people with like 1000s of commits and stuff. It's so it's definitely not just me working on the compiler. In fact, I don't even have the number one most commits anymore. But in my mind, rocks code base still has a bus factor of one it's just that now there are multiple people who if they got hit by a bus or you know the less violent version being they decided to retire and you know take up farming instead of programming where it would be a serious problem because there's parts of the code base that still only one person knows about it it's just like that one person isn't necessarily me and from a trade-offs perspective on the one hand, you can say, oh, well, that's still better because there are other parts of the code base that multiple people know about. And it's like, okay, that's true on the one hand. But on the other hand, now it means that there is a greater number of people for whom if they you know, walked away from the project or disappeared or whatever, that it would cause a serious problem for the project where we'd have this chunk of code that nobody now knows how it works. And the only way we can work on it is if somebody else reads it, hopefully understands it, gets up to speed, hopefully doesn't make any mistakes due to not having context that was in that one person's head. And it's easy to say like, oh, well, that's easy. Here's what you should do. Just A, invest a ton of time in de-siloing and make sure that you never have the position where only one person knows about that part of the code base and B, write documentation for everything. And of course, do those things while also implicitly C, not slowing down the project so much that nobody ends up using it because or D, people decide that, hey, this is um, something I do as a volunteer work in my spare time because I think it's fun and that doesn't sound like fun anymore, so I'm not going to do it. It's non-trivial to solve those problems. 
And actually, on the the blog post, uh, when it got shared, it was shared on Lobsters, and there was one guy from Rock who, I think, I don't remember his name or her name. Brendan, yeah. Brendan. He was responsible for, like, the arm or the something like that. Yeah, we had Brendan on the podcast earlier. So Brendan is definitely, I mean, he's an example of this, where he is an expert, like, to the point of, like, He's really the only one who like totally understands how this code works for our custom linker and also for the development backend. So it's not just it's ARM at x86, but it's basically like for production, like uh, release builds, we use LLVM because it's really good at optimizations. Unfortunately, LLVM also runs very slowly. So for development builds, and we don't do this everywhere yet. Well, <laughs> actually, we don't even have it enabled by default yet because it's not feature parity with LLVM yet. But Basically, when you do enable the development build, it goes straight to machine code and just doesn't even use LLVM at all. Runs way faster. And the goal is to switch over to that completely for develop- all development builds um, once it you know gets to feature parity. But as far as like who knows how that part of the code base works, the development backend and the custom linker, it's basically just Brendan. And so like if Brendan was like, you know, disappeared for whatever reason, we would be like, "Uh oh, (laughs) that's a big problem now. Whereas in a model where, you know, somehow I were, I mean, and like part of the reason that I wanted to structure Rock's development is like having, you know, multiple specialists and stuff is just that I don't think that like given my ambition level for the project, I don't think I would personally be capable of doing it. I have a lot of respect for you and for Evan for like building a whole language, like, you know, on your own. I just actually think if I tried to do that, I would not be successful. (laughs) It's kind of like the, I get like an itch of like, if I don't know about something, I want to know about it. So that kind of is a aspect where like, I didn't know that much about ES build before looking into it. And then once I discovered it, I'm like, this is amazing. This is so much faster than any other bundler that I've used in JavaScript before. And, uh, I really like collecting those like random bits of knowledge because you can apply them into so many situations later on. Like at work, we're migrating stuff from like a really old Gulp setup to Webpack. Gulp, right. (laughs) It's like really old, really old. And now I can chime in and say, hey, what if we use ESBuild instead and have like way better compile times for our code? But I think uh, you can have sort of So another interesting model in the open source world that I've been part of is uh, we had this uh, Elm community organization on GitHub. And you were part of it, I think, and I was part of it and a bunch of other people. But we kind of at some point realized that these community projects that a lot of people might contribute to or might want to contribute to, they kind of need someone who is guiding how it's built and what happens to it. Right, we use the term champion, as I recall. Yeah, exactly. Champion, yes. (laughs) So you see, you would have a champion, and that champion would be responsible for merging pull requests, giving feedback, uh, triaging issues, that kind of stuff. They didn't need to necessarily build a lot of the stuff themselves, but they needed to be the the contact point, maybe on Slack, where someone could say, hey, I want to add this thing to Webpack Loader, for example. And then they could reach out to the the champion for that project. This is actually an interesting topic that gets into one of the things I alluded to earlier, which is just like, you know, a lot of open source work happens because just for fun, like it's not people who are getting paid to do it. It's uh, people who are like, hey, I want this to exist. I'm going to go build it on my nights and weekends. And I think 
uh, again, something that doesn't get discussed enough. I mean, there's a lot of conversation about how people do this and then companies use this to get rich and people say, well, they should get compensated. But the way that I've always thought of it is more that I like to build software and I like to give a lot of it away for free. And what I'm looking for out of that is personal enjoyment. Like a lot of these projects that I made, I made because I just like wanted it to exist. And then after I built it, I was like, I want other people to be able to use this. Or in a lot of cases, my motivation was just other people using it in the first place. But there's a pretty different story between the feeling of like joy that I get from building the thing in the first place. And then it's like, cool. And then like maintain it and do bug fixes and support for it for the next 15 years. Like that's not the same level of enjoyment, at least not for me, especially if this is like something I'm doing on my nights and weekends. And also doubly, especially when it's like, well, the more times I've done this, the more, you know, I'm like, well, yeah, but I want to build a new thing now. And it's like, well, you can't because you need to spend your weekend triaging bugs on obscure operating systems for, you know, this project or, or browsers or whatever. And so there's definitely that is something that I think is also sort of an unsolved problem where it's it's like, well, there's there's an incentive mismatch here and we don't really seem to be any closer to like dealing with it. But I think kind of the first step is just like acknowledging that that's a real thing. And so the Elm Community Project was this would happen a lot in the Elm community where someone would like like spend some time getting a project off the ground and a lot of people would start using it. And then the original author would, you know, just not be for whatever reason interested in spending their free time on maintaining it anymore. Completely understandable. But then of course the people who are using it are like, Hey, I want updates. I want bug fixes, etc." And so then that was, you know, to bring it back, that was where the champion idea came up was like, let's, you know, fork this and put it in this repo called Elm community. And then, we just had a system of like, who wants to champion taking this thing on and like shepherding, you know, pull requests and bug fixes and so forth. I really like proving that something is possible. So I get that, like that joy of building something just to prove that it can be done. And then when I kind of shift over to maintaining something or adding features that someone else has requested, I try to always do that on like work time. <laughs> So it's like, like if I can justify doing something during work time on an open source project, then I will do that. And a great example of that is actually the, the Webpack loader for Elm, which I was the champion for for a while. I looked at my commits for it recently, and very little of them were like me building stuff. It was a lot of like merging other people's opinions. <laughs> <laughs> uh, opinions as in like, oh, this should work a little bit differently. Yeah. So like one example was like setting the max number of Elm instances that could be compiling at one time so they don't collide. And there was like a whole bunch of opinions that weren't really benchmarked. So like some people were like four, some people were like two, someone was like one. And we actually benchmarked it at no red ink and then realized that by having multiple Elm instances, they were stepping on top of each other and making the whole thing slower. <laughs> so then we set the default number of uh, Elm instances to one, I think. Yeah, because this was before it did like file locking, right? Yeah. Yeah, I remember this. So actually, I think there was some, some Christmas time when I was working on that while I was at NoRed Inc. because it was blocking our deploys or like causing our deploys to be seriously slow and flaky. So then I could justify spending my time on that open source project because it would contribute to work. Yeah, that's a good point. And I also, I mean, I, I don't want to downplay that like doing that type of work can be rewarding in its own right. Mainly, I just want to acknowledge that it's like it's different. And so like it's not 
you know, the sort of reward function that we have for like how much enjoyment we get out of it or like whether we get enjoyment out of it is like default going to be different. And then like for some people, maybe it's about the same for some people, you know, one is going to be more enjoyable than the other, but we shouldn't just pretend like, you know, because someone creates something in their spare time and like wants to share it with the world that they're also going to want to put the same level of energy into maintaining it indefinitely. So like bringing this back to like, you know, community discussions and things like that. I think this is also an interesting area where like I have been saying that I want to be the BDFN for rock, meaning that like benevolent dictator for now. (laughs) And I explicitly want to, at some point transition to a, I don't know, committee or what, I think it's an unsolved problem, what it should transition to, but in partially because I'm, you know, not going to live forever, obviously nobody is. So I want to have a plan in place before I die (laughs) for like what happens, but also just because like knowing myself at some point, I will probably get diminishing returns on like, you know, personal enjoyment from like, you know, maintaining the project. And there will come a point where it's just irresponsible to keep adding features to it, where it's like the main thing that the project should be doing is like, let's not mess up what we've got and let's make a like nice, stable, you know, predictable like language experience for people. We're nowhere near that right now, but like, you know, what, like 20 years in the future? I mean, probably that's, that's going to be the case. As a slight aside, when I say like 20 years in the future, I'm always like, you know, well, that's assuming that like there isn't like artificial general intelligence and everybody's like, you know, just talking to computers with their brains. And like, you know, depending on who you ask, you know, we are 20 years away from that or, or less. But also, you know, if you went back 20 years ago, there was also plenty of people saying we're 20 years away from that or less. So I think uh, like software estimation is like notoriously over optimistic. And then we always like miss all sorts of deadlines. And I cannot think of any field within computer science that has more notoriously blown every predicted deadline than AI, like over the decades. I mean, it's just like really comically, like wildly off all the time. And I mean, there's lots of cool new AI things coming out, but I don't think it's like reasonable to assume that like programming languages as we know them are going to like go away and like not exist in my lifetime. I think that would be, I, I would take the under bet on that. I think it's, it's, it's not going to happen, even though I think AI is going to keep getting better, obviously. You kind of have to like assume that the singularity is not going to happen like in the next 20 years. <laughs> and because it won't happen, programming languages will still be written by regular humans that aren't like cybernetically enhanced them. Well, and even if it does, like things take time to get adopted. Like people might have said, for example, that like, okay, you know, the iPhone came out and smartphones became a thing and that completely transformed everything, which means that like no one, for example, has a landline anymore. It's like, oh, well, no, actually, no, that's that's still a thing. Or you might say that like, oh, well, everyone's going to have smartphones and no one's going to have feature phones anymore. Well, no, actually, no, it's not. It's still still not true. Like, it's not like a new transformative technology comes out and then pre-existing technologies all immediately are go extinct. Like, that's just not ever really happened. So I don't see why. Like, yeah, I mean, at, at some point, I assume that we will have ways of interacting with computers to create programs that are very different from like how we do them today with languages. But even if that does come out in the next 20 years, that doesn't mean that all of the existing ones will just vanish overnight. They're still going to continue to be useful for some period of time. And who knows how long that period of time is. And that's like, again, something I want to be thinking about and like trying to be responsible about. One of the things that I really sticks with me is kind of seeing this wave of async await taking over like almost every mainstream language now has some kind of built-in way of dealing with async await. And 
when I kind of think about Deru, my language, I kind of sit there thinking sometimes like at some point in the near future, I'm going to have the set of features in the language design that closely matches what my vision is. And at that point, I don't really need to add a new feature. But what if we come up with like a new way of dealing with computation, for example, async await, and then you need to add that new feature in the future. And then you get like some weird things like, like the Python implementation of async await is a bit interesting. Like it, it works pretty well, as long as the libraries are compatible and you're on like the latest version of Python, then async await there is pretty good. But it, it kind of makes the language feel quite different. Like when I learned Python, it was 2.0 four, maybe 2.3, a while ago. <laughs> and when I look at Python that I write today, it's like totally different. There's so many new features that have been added that I used to stay on top of them by following the Python ideas mailing list. And at some point I stopped following that. And when I go and look at the change log and see what's changed and what's come in newer versions of Python, just like, did this feature really need to be added? <laughs> like, did this really need to exist? Like async await makes total sense because you're trying to model events that are happening in a way that doesn't just block on them or doesn't just require some kind of magic library to do all this stuff for you. So that makes sense to me. But like there's some smaller things. I can't remember what off the my head, but there's some small things that when I look at them and think, did you really need to add that to the language? And I kind of want to, I want to be in that position for Deru where instead of saying yes to all these like feature additions, it'll just be no. And that's pretty much the line that like Evan took with Elm. Like a lot of people have opinions on what should be added to Elm and Evan has a vision and they don't fit into the vision. And so they're not added. And I think that's a really a good way to develop a language that is consistent with itself. Yeah. The saying no part is like, socially hard but really important in terms of like getting a good you know product like a good end result and i think about like python is a is an interesting example because that's always been in my mind a really core thing to python's like identity or, or, or like branding i guess is like this is a like small there's one way to do it you know kind of a language but the more language features you add generally speaking the more ways there are to do it whatever it is. And so over time, if Python keeps accumulating features at some point, that motto is going to become somewhat of a joke because it's just not reflective of the language anymore. It's now more of a kitchen sink language. And that seems to be, especially once you have design by committee, like languages seem to trend towards that over time is adding features, not because they're essential. And I think async await is a great example where it's not like a language should add zero things over time. It's more that, you know, once it gets to a certain point of maturity, the rate of adding new things should really, really decrease. And another good example that, that comes to my mind is SIMD. And there, that's something where in a lot of use cases, you can get a very, very substantial performance boost and like a lot of performance critical things. But it really requires, you know, like you said, a, a new way of like doing computation. You know, uh, we would like to think that, you know, optimizing compilers can just like, oh, SIMD-ify everything for you. But in practice, that has 
only sometimes worked out lots and lots of times where it doesn't work out. But this is a hardware change. It's not even like, you know, oh, we discovered this new way of representing non-blocking things or like the, you know, OS kernels added new ways of doing, you know, concurrent stuff. It's like, no, no, this is like, this is silicon that didn't exist before. And now if you want to take advantage of it, you have to, you know, introduce new concepts into the programming language. So, yeah, I mean, it, it shouldn't be zero new features, which is unfortunate because if it were zero new features, I think it would be easier because then you could just say like, the answer is no, always, buy. <laughs> that's a very simple rule to apply, but it shouldn't be zero. It should be small, but not zero. And that's what makes it hard, I think. And and I think when it comes to language design in particular, maybe not maybe implementation, not so much, but the design of the language itself, like, uh, like keywords and syntax and whatever, it's very important to look at what other languages are doing and how they do it well. For example, like you should probably not have so many unique features about your language that nothing else is comparable. <laughs> that's that's a very risky thing to do for sure. Yeah, so like async await is a great example because a lot of languages took it a lot later than other languages. So the version that Python has came in a lot later than the original implementation of async await, which means that all the hard work of like, how does this work in the grammar of the language has kind of already been done and you just have to adapt it to your language. For example, like do notation in Haskell. Uh, I've added do notation to Deru and pretty much when I was implementing it, I was thinking like, okay, I need to do this async await wrapper for dealing with TypeScript and JavaScript code that does async await stuff. And I could have just added async await syntax, but that isn't consistent with an ML language. And when you look at the ML languages that exist, you have the the OCaml approach, which I've never been much of a user of OCaml, so I'm not super familiar with, but Haskell with the do notation, that seemed like the obvious choice for me. And that meant that I didn't have to worry too much about like the specifics of how do notation should look in Deru because I could just borrow Haskell's version and just make it work for my language. I know um, Haskell's do notation is based on type classes. How did you end up doing that, like to decide like what the chaining function is? So in Deru, basically you can have either constants or functions inside a do notation, but also like plain statements. And they just get turned into, because it compiles to JavaScript and TypeScript, it just gets converted to an imperative block. So. Oh, I see. Okay. So it's always like await, basically. Always await, yeah. It basically gets wrapped in a, a big await, and then every substatement in there can have its own await. But then you can do, you can do async stuff by having a function inside the do notation that doesn't use do notation, and then it's async. So you wouldn't, like in Haskell, you could do it with a list if you wanted to. I don't know why you would, but you could. But I assume you can't do that in Deru. You could do like a, a list and then dot .map and, and then have a function that's called like list.map and then pass the list and then have a function that's called and that will be wrapped in an async await wrapper. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I, I meant monadic chaining of like, you know, like like lists, you know. For that, you just use constants. So every constant is wrapped in a await wrapper. So then... You just have it broken down like that. I've never actually wanted that. I just like, I know it's something you can do with do notation. I think there's an interesting, I don't know if tension is the right word, but, or, or even trade-off, but something that I really appreciate about 
trying to design a language in the context of existing languages. And this is kind of something that I suspect that like every language has done to some extent. So uh, Rock is like a, a direct descendant of Elm, but does a lot of things differently. And part of the reason that I feel comfortable like making you know design decisions differently than Elm is that I always know, like in, in a lot of cases, I could say, look, this is something that we're going to do differently from Elm. And it's an experiment. We're going to try it out. And if it doesn't work, we have a very obvious fallback, which is that we can change it to do exactly what Elm did because we already know that works great. And so this is kind of a, a nice way, in my mind, to try things out and, and to potentially make progress is to say like, well, we think this might be better. That's our hypothesis. We don't really know until we try it. But if it turns out that our hypothesis is wrong and it's actually worse, we can always change the design back to something that we know is already great and, and, and better than that. But of course, the older the language gets, the riskier it is to do those experiments. So like a, a good example of this and something that's that has worked out really well in Rock is um, not going into too much detail is like instead of traditional algebraic data types like you find in Elm and Haskell and Deru and what else, Rust, we do something that's more like OCaml's polymorphic variants by default. And so these have some like, it's basically like anonymous some types. And, and we have like a, a different mechanism for opaque types. And so they, they have a lot of nice upsides, but, and I was like talking about this with Evan at a conceptual level, like before, long before it had been implemented in like, you know, it's like 2018, 2019, something like that. No, it must have been 2018. Cause this was before I'd like even written any code in the compiler, I think. And we we're just like chatting about it at a meetup. And I was like, you know, talking about rock and I was like asking his opinion on this. And I was like, you know, do you think this is too risky? And, and he was like, well, it's too risky for Elm. <laughs> like, you don't want to go back and like retrofit it, you know, to like a, a language that's already being used by thousands and thousands of people. But like, but for a brand new language that zero people are using, it's like, yeah, we can try it out. And if it doesn't work out, we can always fall back on traditional algebraic data types. And so that's one of many experiments that we've been doing in Rock. that's like, you know, trying something different than what Elm did. This one has worked out. Some of them didn't work out and we just reverted back to what Elm did and it's fine. With uh, Dedu, we have a lot of like experimental ideas that I kind of just think about one day and then I try it out. But I've kind of had like two barriers to stop me from influencing the future of uh, Dedu. So one is sort of, I haven't released 1.0 which means that right now I can break as many things as I want. And if I think it's a bad idea, I can just drop it, which should be like, if you follow semantic versioning, that should be kind of obvious that the core of the like, initial release, like the proper production release, it shouldn't really matter too much if you drop features. That being said, I actually, the first compiled version of Dedu is compatible with the compiler today. So it's got like full backward compat or forward compatibility, I guess. But where I've been like experimenting has been a lot around like tooling and libraries. So for example, I added hydration to the HTML renderer a while ago. And because there was no dependencies on using a hydration method already, I could do whatever I want with the hydration method and implement it however I wanted and have the API be whatever I wanted. And that's kind of changed a few times and it's pretty, it works totally fine. But then I'm also like experimental one that I'm working on right now is generating only, so Svelte, for example, will 
you can write JavaScript and HTML and CSS in one file, and then it will compile it, basically a language, and it has like some reactive components so that when data changes, other data will change and be updated in the in the HTML. I really like that idea just because of how small the footprint is. Like the generated JavaScript and HTML is super small and super minimal. So I have a branch of the HTML renderer that does the same thing, which means that like your basic, uh, like a basic button example, where you have two buttons, plus and minus and, and a number in between. Right, the counter, yeah, <laughs> the classic. I think that was 360 bytes when I compiled it with this new experimental branch, including HTML and including JavaScript. And those kind of ideas are very easy to play with because it won't affect anything that exists already today. Like I have Dedu in production in a bunch of places at work and outside of work. And adding this new feature of like minimal JavaScript HTML output isn't going to break the things that I already have. So I can do whatever I want with that. I can change it however I want. I can make it render in totally different ways. And that's very freeing, I think. Definitely, um, there are a lot of different philosophies around backwards compatibility. I think it's pretty obvious that like, if you introduce something and it's it doesn't break any existing things, that's sort of like the nicest user experience when considered in the context of like what the upgrade path is like. It's like, just start using the new thing and everything continues to work. Great. I know that like uh, the, the most vocal person I can think of in terms of uh, advocating for like never break backwards compatibility has to be Rich Hickey. Like he talks about it, like the idea of like change is like broken in his, uh, as he put it. I forget which talk this was. I think it was speculation. But basically, uh, he was sort of making the case that if you're going to make a new thing that works differently than the old thing, you should just change the name and like not remove the old thing, which certainly has plenty of advantages in the sense of, you know, old things continue to work and that's great. But it also does have a couple of downsides. One is for the maintainers of the software, that sucks because you can never clean up old things. You have to keep them around forever. Two is for new users, that means that they're confronted with lots of like deprecated APIs that they need to know not to use, which depending on the UX of the like documentation system may or may not be a significant downside. But another one that I, I again, it's something I haven't really seen discussed as much as I think it should be, is that having old designs around can be design constraints on what's possible to build for new things. For example, if you want to say, well, one of the things that we want to do with like this new version, like one of the potential selling points of a new design is that we can make it run a lot faster or we can make it take up a lot less space. If you still potentially have all of the legacy stuff there, like a, a good example comes to mind as uh, databases. Like if you have a database that needs to store a certain piece of information, you're like, you know what? We want to stop storing that information. Potentially, you can't get the new benefit of like, well, we're going to take up less storage space if you're still on the hook for storing the old way anyway. And if you want that data to be there, you can't just like run the new faster 
you know, method or function or whatever, because you still also additionally have to run the old logic that computed the thing for the old thing to be stored so that, you know, the old operations on it can still work. And that's not just databases. It could also be like an in-memory store where you're modifying some state. And if you want, you know, this old function to work that requires that some cache be updated or something like that, you still have to run the logic to update that cache in case someone decides to want to call the old function. So I think the downside of like backwards compatibility on future design constraints is like underrated. I'm not saying Rich Hickey doesn't know about that, but I don't see it, you know, being discussed as a downside as much as like I consider it to be. And one of the things that I've come to appreciate about like Elm is like almost maybe the opposite of that where like uh, for quite a few years and, you know, it is pre 1.0. So, you know, I think that's fair game. There were just like breaking changes that were like, Hey, new release of the language a bunch of stuff changed. And generally speaking, what I found was that how long it took to upgrade was kind of a function of how many lines of code you had, of course. But these were not breaking changes that ended up resulting in bugs for end users was my experience. It was like, you know, mechanical to fix them. Like you're like, okay, change this API. You know, this function is now called that or maybe it works a little bit differently. But because of like Elm's overall design and the type checker and like the type system, I found those to be reliable upgrades. And there's a couple of different axes to consider there. One is how reliable is the upgrade? Like what's the consequence of it? Is it going to break stuff? And I think probably the most notorious example of upgrades leading to bugs is Python 2 to 3, where the changes were such that people would try to migrate from Python 2 to Python 3 and they would have, they would find that they had bugs, you know, and things broke and like didn't work until and they just had to go through and fix them all. But also, I mean, there's of course the obvious one of like how much time does it take? And I think there's like an interesting unexplored territory of like automatic migrations when you have something that is just kind of a small cleanup and you could actually literally run a script or maybe even the the, the tool could ship to the script that just automatically upgrades your code to the new version. When we had the Norelink, we had the 0.16 code base and we were moving to 0.17 and it took a very long time. We had a lot of files and then a lot of the changes had to be done by hand. But we did have a bunch of scripts that would do some of the migration for you. Particularly, I seem to recall, Aaron added into Elm format some functionality that would take one version of the language and upgrade it to the next version. And that kind of tooling is really, really cool, really awesome. I think Swift has a similar mechanism. I'm not, I haven't used it myself, but I've seen the the upgrade path and it looks pretty appetizing. <laughs> I think when it comes to Deru, so I wrote some of those scripts for Elm, upgraded like the packages that we depended on at Norad Inc using automated scripts and stuff like that. And I think, because I didn't have access to the AST, because in order to mess with the AST, you had to set up the compiler and have uh, the Haskell setup working for you. And that made deploying it a bit more complicated and stuff like that. And like giving it out to users a bit more complicated. Because in Deru, the AST is in Deru itself, or it, it will be a couple of days. <laughs> It's a lot easier to just uh, say, okay, I have this version of the AST. I can upgrade it to this next version of the AST. Making these like upgrade tools a lot easier to build and work with and enjoy. <laughs> this is something we're interested in Rock too, because we have this like long-term goal of like making a really nice editor which has plugins for it. And of course, like ASTs are you know, if you want to be able to author plugins that can mess around with your code in a in a structured way, then we need to have some way to expose the. AST to users. 
But there are some interesting like design questions there. So for example, right now, we don't do this for the actual like expressions or declarations or anything, but just for types, we have a, a tool that's like already far enough along to be useful and actually quite nice, but it's not, hasn't like reached its full potential yet, which is there's a command you can run called rock glue. And basically what that does is this is if you're authoring a rock platform where you're like talking to a low level language like Rust or C or C++, then uh, what the glue command does is you basically say like, I want to generate Rust glue. And what it'll do is it basically walks across this like data structure of like all the types in the rock program. And it just generates Rust code that are like type declarations for that. So that when you're like, you know, making your Rust calls or whatever, your Rust code just like knows exactly what the correct rock types are. And you don't have to do all that, you know, sort of synchronization by hand. Because like, you know, if you're doing like JavaScript interop in a language that compiles the JavaScript, well, both languages are speaking the same language. So there's, you know, that's a lot more straightforward. Whereas in the case of Rust, you have to use like the C ABI as an intermediary. And it's like a lot, a lot more complicated, a lot easier to get wrong. And glue kind of makes that more straightforward. And so the next version of glue that we're working towards is making it so that anyone can write their own sort of like glue generator for whatever target language they want and do that by writing rock code. So we want to take this data structure of like, here's all the types in your rock program, go nuts, do whatever you want, you know, go, just uh, generate whatever, you know, Rust code or C code, or actually um, one of the ones that I'm interested in is Ruby code, because we have a little proof of concept of calling rock functions from within Ruby, just using Ruby's CFFI, and then the rock code essentially compiles down to C functions, and then Ruby can call it. But of course, the hard part is just like getting that boundary right. And so this is where glue that is, you know, capable of being written in, like you just write your own generator in rock will be really nice because then you, you can just write one for Ruby once. And then now anyone can basically, you know, with a pretty minimal setup, be able to call rock functions from Ruby. So yeah, it's, it's interesting to see the differences between what's ergonomic for someone writing a plugin or something like that and what's optimal for the compiler itself because those at least in our case are not one to one <laughs> in Denny we have uh, so I started with targeting typescript that was my main target that I wanted to generate code to and then I ended up adding JavaScript because why not since typescript is already there and then I added Elm I think. No, I added Deru. So I wanted a formatter. I wanted a way of like automatically formatting my code. So built into the compiler is a, a formatter, uh, which can generate Deru code. And then I added Elm. And then you kind of run into this uh, problem you're talking about where you have like, you need to have some kind of interface between the code that you have written in your language versus your target language. And my next target is, so I'm in the middle of rewriting the compiler directly into Deru itself, uh, about halfway done with that. But my, my next goal after that, I think, is to maybe target Go and use V8 Go, which is like a library which allows you to interface with a V8 instance inside Go. And the reason for that is basically I want to have as much as possible be generated as Go code, and then maybe just have like the library part be with this V8 uh, library. And in theory, that should be faster and smaller and easier to distribute. Part of my thinking, I got like a Chromebook, which had four gigabytes of RAM, and I was running some of my Dadu projects on it, and they ran fine. But 
when I was running the test suite, which is about like 2000 tests, 200 files or something, it was running out of memory. And why is this running out of memory? Like the things that are involved don't use that much memory. <laughs> like if I compiled straight to straight to machine code, the things that I was doing in those projects wouldn't use that much memory. Instead, it's taking like one gigabyte of memory on a four gigabyte Chromebook that isn't very happy about that. <laughs> so if I can target one of these like faster, low, lower impact uh, languages, that will save a whole bunch of work for me. Go's an interesting choice because it's it's one of the few languages that I know of that has sort of like high level semantics. Like it's not I, somehow Go was apparently early on branded as a systems level language. It doesn't make any sense to me. Like in my mind, systems level language is a language that you might write an operating system in. And I don't I don't know. Like maybe other people have different definitions of that term than I do, but <laughs> so it both has high level semantics, but still sort of targets like direct machine code. And it doesn't have like a, a VM that it's targeting. The only other language I can think of uh, that's like widely used where that's true is Swift. I and mean, I guess you could say like Objective-C, you know, by the same token. But I don't know of many projects that like compile to Go, which actually like now that you mentioned it, it's kind of surprising. I would think that that would be a, like given how popular compile to JavaScript is, or I guess like how many different languages do it. I'm surprised I don't hear more about languages choosing to compile to Go. And you got like, uh, Go provides a lot of really nice features. So like development in Go is generally pretty nice. Like you have the format, you have a built-in test, you have a built-in benchmark. We won't touch top packages because that's a bit of a, a controversy. But overall, the language is like pretty nice to work with. And the main thing that I'm interested in is that it's pretty fast and very easy to distribute because you know you can build a static binary or you can target like a ton of platforms. I don't really remember how many they target, but it's a lot. And that kind of like that distribution method is really nice. And being able to have that speed is uh, beneficial compared to JavaScript for sure. Cool. Well, hey, this is a great conversation. Thanks so much for catching up and talking through all these things. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been uh, really good. <laughs>